Good morning. Morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name's Paul. I'm one of the one of the leaders here. I'm coming through there, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, I'm coming through there. Can I just extend that again? Um, John and Jan, these guys have been a real blessing. We're one of the families who've received so much from these guys and in, in, down through the past 13, 14 years of knowing them. So sad to see them go, but also excited for this next phase of life for them. And also want to reiterate about Roy and V. It's so good to see you guys. I, was, I did a wedding last, last week, last Saturday, for a couple in their 20s. And I did the talk, and as part of the talk, I use your marriage um, now and the way you guys function and flourish as a, just a real picture of the gospel, of how Christ loves the church and how the, a marriage just clearly points that picture. So great to see you guys, really, really is. Right, Exodus 31 is where we are today. So if you want to turn to that in your Bibles, it would be great if you could have it open in front of you as well. The, the, the words will be on the, the screen as well, but it would be really good if you can just have it in front of you as well to see the context, because this is part of a narrative, part of a story. The Bible starts and ends in the same place, and that, that, the place that it starts and ends is in God's right relationship with humanity. And as the story of God with humanity develops, what you see, you start to see patterns, you know, like the, the melodic lines you get in songs, the, the echoes of God's work that were at the beginning of creation. And when we, when we see these patterns throughout Scripture, they build in, and increase in fullness and in depth. And we start right at the beginning of the Bible with God who created the world. And what happens is we read the phrase, then God said. And we see it six times in six days. God creates this beautiful world. And the, beauty of this, the pinnacle of this beautiful creation is human beings. And we read that God, he lives with humanity in this perfect world, perfect creation, perfect place in perfect relationship. And then on the seventh day, God finishes. And he rests. He enjoys. He, he fills his creation. But then the story unravels because the human beings, they rebel against God and it brings sin and death and decay and separation from God, between God and humanity. And God, right at the start, in his grace, promises to make a way for human beings to live in right relationship with him. And the Exodus story, as we read it, shows God's plan being worked out. And so what we've read and what we've seen is that God, he frees the people from slavery. He, he saves them. He redeems them. And then that same God, he speaks to them. He shows them. He tells them how to live as his people. And he leads them to, to, to this promised land, or he's leading to this promised land, this new Eden. And the last few weeks as we've been in it, through these last few Sundays, we've seen that God's been speaking to Moses up on the mountain for 40 days. And God's been giving Moses instructions for how to build the tabernacle, this, this tent, which is going to be his dwelling place where he lives amongst his people. And we made our way through chapters 25 to 29 where there's been really clear instructions down to the details of how to build this tabernacle. We've seen how he's given details about who it is to serve in this tabernacle, this priesthood. And there's been this repeated phrase all the way through these chapters, these echoes from Eden. The Lord said they're up on the screen there. So like in creation, we see and we get God speaking through these chapters seven times, reminding us of what he did in Genesis and reminding, him, reminding us of his plan. Now those first six times that he says it, the Lord said, they're all about building the tabernacle. You'll see them up there, all the way down to Exodus 30, 34. And the last, the seventh, 
God tells his people to rest. Exodus 31, 12, that we'll look at today. So Exodus repeats that pattern of Eden. And God is saying, God is making it clear. God is being, bringing clarity and saying, look, I have provided everything that is needed for you to be with me. I am making it right. I am making a way. I will live with you as you are my people. Trust me. So let me pray and then we'll read what God has to say here. Father, I want to thank you that, that even this very opening of your word is a privilege that we get to do. Father, I just pray this morning by your spirit that you would encourage our hearts. Father, we need you to help us as we read this. So help us, I pray, to, to see. Help us to, to hear. Lead us, I pray. Shine the, the light, the gospel light into the depths of our heart. Refresh us, I pray, by your spirit, through your son. Amen. Chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and all its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy priest. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So they have instruction. That's where we've got up to up to today. They've got all the raw materials. They've got all the instruction. But there is a massive amount of work to be done. And it seems on the face of it like a really difficult task. There's going to be building. There's going to be sorting. There's going to be carving, skilled carving. There's going to be crafting. There's going to be engraving. There's going to be sewing. There's going to be embroidery. There's going to be stone cutting. And so God... In his grace provides for his people. He provides a team of people led by these two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab. And we read here that God fills them with his spirit. What that means is he fills them for the task, this task that he has given them. And the task that he has given them here is to create the tabernacle, his dwelling place, that tent, and everything that goes with it. And there's echoes here, if we've got ears to hear, of the same spirit that hovered over the water of creation in Genesis 1 now fills human beings to create the tabernacle of God. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit fills them with intelligence to understand all these instructions and all these tasks that you're looking at going scratching your head. He fills them with intelligence to understand the, that He fills them with knowledge and discernment to solve all the problems that are going to come with all of these different situations they're going to be faced with. They're going to create something very, very complex and something very, very beautiful. And he fills them with craftsmanship and ability. That's the experience and the skill to actually do it. These guys are not just workers, they're artists. Verse 7 to 11, I won't read it now, but have a look at it. It just shows you how much they have to make. This is a big task, requires a lot of skill, a variety of skills. And what's really interesting, I think, is that Moses didn't do it. His role was different. 
He had different skills. God provides through his people, a diversity of people and a diversity of gifts to build his dwelling place. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary to China, said, God's work done God's way never lacks God's resources. I think it pause from these kind of texts that we see in the Bible. This gives me great comfort. There's so much we can actually learn here. God is building his kingdom through his people. New Testament calls us the temple of the living God. And God provides for the work that he calls us to do through his people. So Cornerstone Liverpool, God calls us to serve him. He calls us to serve him right here at this particular place at this particular time. To use our gifts, to use our personalities, to use the way that God has made us. The abilities we have, the resources that he might have put at our disposal. The talents that he's given us to further his kingdom as a priesthood of all believers. Working on God's, God's dwelling place. So just on that, just pause for a second and, and ask yourself, or answer a couple of these questions. How are you stewarding your gifts and resources? How are you stewarding them? How are you stewarding your time? Are you generous in your service? Are you generous in your use of your resources, your use of resources, your gifts, your ability, your time? Maybe you're not using them at all. Maybe this is a time to reflect and think, okay, what's it look like for me to step in here? There are so many ways for us to serve in the life of this church. And yes, there is many, many ways on a Sunday. And that's important. So we do, we have music and we have hospitality teams. We have ministry teams. We have um, things out the back with the kids all going on. We have open homes in people's houses all afternoon. These are real ways that we can serve on a Sunday. But it's not just a Sunday. It's also through the week in your gospel communities, maybe meeting people, preparing for things, or asking to help others prepare, providing for things, teaching, maybe going out evangelizing, helping people, loving people, seeing who in the church needs something, praying for people, praying for your church, praying for the people around you, praying for the city. Or maybe you're there thinking, well, I don't know what my ability is. What then? We drove back from this wedding last Sunday, and my daughter, the middle daughter, she turned to, to us and she, she just said, kind of out the blue, but she said, she said what's my talent? That was, the, that was the question she asked, what's my talent? And the way that, that me and my wife responded in a number of different ways, we said, well, these things, they develop over our lives and they develop over time. They grow when they are used and they can change over time. So let me give you an example of that. My brother-in-law, um, Luke, one of the elders here, he's a phenomenal cook, but he didn't start until he was in his 30s. I really now it's great it is my wife bonnie who you see up here singing well bonnie didn't learn harmonies until when we came to plant the church and she really she needed to actually um, sing and learn how to sing in different ways with us she learned how to oh it's there it's not in. sorry guys i didn't realize i'm just cracking away where was i Bonnie, that's where it was. Bonnie, Luke cooking and Bonnie singing. There you go. My life. Okay, so. <laughs> and these gifts, they become apparent as we use them. Gifts become apparent as we exercise them. And, and I need to say that because I think we can get caught in this. We can just get caught and not do anything because, like, well, what, what is it? I don't seem to function like other people, therefore I'm not going to do things. So if you don't know, what I'm going to suggest that you do is try things out as the opportunity arises. Just start to serve in a load of different areas. 
Take risks. Try something new. If you're thinking, have I got the gift of evangelism? Well, you're not going to know unless you tell someone about Jesus. If you're thinking, well, I can't explain it the way they do. Well, they don't save. Your clever words don't save. God does. If you're thinking, have I got the gift of hospitality? Well, open your home and see. If you're thinking, have I got the, the gift of, of helping people? Well, help people. If it's the gift of encouragement, well, start encouraging people. The gifts of, of mercy and acts of mercy, well, just start doing it and see what God does. Ask for God's help. But also, folks, I'd say, work hard at it. Develop it. I'm always saying to my, my daughter, and I'm not sure how helpful it is, but it takes 10,000 hours, doesn't it, to master something, a skill. 10,000 hours. You know, and God can, and he does just work through people in giving us gifts, but he also calls us to hone them and work on them. Gifts often don't just appear like that. They appear over time as we work on them. Last Saturday was in the, during this wedding. I, I came off the wedding. We were at the do later on in the evening, and a, a couple of people commented to me, well, when you stood up, um, I could tell that you'd done this before. I mean, some of them had too much to drink, so I think it might have been that talking. But at that point, I was surprising for me, and I'm like, okay, that's interesting, because I don't view myself as someone who thinks I can stand up here and people think I've done this before. And then I reflected on that and think, well, that's just crazy. I taught for 16 years, and I did. I was ahead of years, so I did all assemblies, as well as teaching to kids every day, six times a day. And I've been doing this job for 10 years. Folks, that's 25 years. If I'm not able to stand up here and actually start speaking, there's a problem. But it's been honed over time. It takes time. Put the effort in, step forward, and take the risk. But I think we also have to be careful because I think what the culture does, it highlights respectable talents. Things like, okay, you go to football. People respect that. Music, good looking, maybe you're funny or you're, you're singing a certain way or dancing or leadership or charisma. And what we have to be careful of, I think that attitude can come into church. We desire certain gifts because they're cool or they're popular. And we actually desire to be different to the way, that, the beautiful way that God made us to function. And that attitude causes us to wilt. You see, in the body of Christ, there is a variety of gifts, all of great value Helps, administration, encouragement, generosity to name just a few. In fact, I have to say that one of the gifts that this church has been built on over the past 13, 14 years that has really fostered growth and discipleship and prayer and fellowship and love for each other and for God is actually hospitality. The gift of hospitality is crucial. And this is a call, I think, to step forward. Bezalel and Aholiab. They had the skill set and they had the experience in life. They've probably been doing construction and things like this and art for a, a long time. They practiced it. But they never made a tabernacle for God. It's a big task. I'm guessing there would have been anxiety. I'm guessing there would have been fear there. We can't just gloss over that. They would have been pressured because they're being asked to do this in front of the multitude of Israelites who are going to be watching this whole process. But they did it. They stepped forward. They took a risk for the glory of God. They used what they had, and God provided everything that they needed as they served and did His work. And God provides for us everything we need as we serve and do His work. So, folks, don't let fear, anxiety, maybe a desire to look good, or pressure, or not having the gift that you think you should have, stop you serving. Step forward in the service of God. And then we get the, the last, then the Lord said, Verse 12. Can I just ask, is this, this isn't coming back, is it? I'm going to take this off. Sorry, guys. It's just, uh, affects my glasses. There we go. So, verse 30, it's a verse 31, verse, chapter 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, 
you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, they shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So that is the seventh of the then the Lord said, and it's the command to keep the Sabbath. And this is really important for the formation of Israel. You see, as we look through the book of, of the Exodus, what we see is that God tells his people five times to keep the Sabbath. Five times throughout the book. So the first one is in, in chapter 16 when God um, provided manna for, for God's people. He said, I'll provide it for six days, but on the sixth day I'll provide enough for the seventh. So rest on the seventh day. It was a call to trust on that seventh day. We then see it in the Ten Commandments, the moral law, for them to, a way for them to live rightly as God's people. We see it in chapter 23, verse 12, where it's used to, to promote like, social justice and ecology and environmental um, things. The fourth one is this one, and then the last one is in chapter 35. So five times that God mentions it. That means that the Sabbath is central to what it means to be the people of God. It's central. It's really important. So, so as we make our way through that, just a few things as we, we step in. First of all, the death penalty here. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? If you don't keep it, you'll be cut off and you'll die. So the question we have to ask then is, okay, well, why is it so severe here? And the answer is because it's, it's central to what it means to be the people of God. Effectively, if they're not keeping the Sabbath, remembering the Sabbath, they're showing, Israel is showing that they're not interested. They're not interested in knowing God. It's key to who they are as a people. When we see what the Sabbath means in a bit, you'll see that it's key. So they're basically saying, we don't want to know God. It's an act of, of defiant rebellion. My relationship to you, God, is not important. That's effectively what, what's happening when we don't keep the Sabbath. Or the Israelites didn't keep it. So what was it? And how do we understand it? Verse 15, you see that it's a, the Sabbath was, it was a pattern for God's people to, to live by. And this pattern it followed the creation pattern. Work six days, six days rest one. Sabbath actually means to cease, simple in the concept of that way. So Israel wasn't really allowed, to, it wasn't allowed to do any, any regular work. So it's not a day for, for laboring. It's not a day for doing your own thing. And let's put it in the context as well, folks, because how gracious is God? Don't forget who these people were. They were a nation of freed slaves. They had no rest in Egypt. They were made to work constantly, all day, everywhere, and they were driven but how gracious is this new master, this new God? He's saying, no, I command you to rest. And the specific context here, don't forget, is Bezalel and, and, and Aholiab. They're working on the tabernacle. It's a time when God's people are called to work and do God's labor in that regard. Or even Bezalel and Aholiab, they're saying, you can't work on the, on the tabernacle on the seventh day. This is my work. I'm doing it through you guys. You rest. So what is it for? Because I think that's important to understanding what's going on here. What is it for? And I think we see in this passage here two things. Firstly, in verse 13, 
We read that it's a day for God's people to be formed. Okay, the phrase that is used is knowledge of God. So they're to grow, they're to get to know God. It's a day that is to be set aside by this nation, this whole nation. It's a day to pray, to, to worship, to, to, to praise, to rest and be refreshed. It's a day for God's people who, again, don't forget that context, rescued from slavery. God in his grace says, get to know me. Get to know who I am, the one who has made you holy and the one who is making you holy. Get to know your Father God. I've set aside the day. Your work, I'll provide for you. What's more important? Come and get to know me. Come and get to know me. But secondly as well, the Sabbath is patterned after creation. We see that. God, right at the start we read, made man. And he made man in his own image. We are image bearers of God. And when he made man, he did it with a creation pattern of work and rest. There is a rhythm and routine, a rhythm and routine of rest and work that has been built into or patterned into creation. It's there. And it's been patterned into humanity's functioning. And what that means is we flourish when we work and when we rest. We flourish when we have a rhythm of work and rest. Work is good. The Bible does not say work is bad. The Bible actually says work is good. We're called to work. But the Bible also says that rest is good. So we are to have a healthy rhythm of work and rest. God himself sets that pattern. Verse 17. God rested and was refreshed. And humanity, God's image bearers, are also to have rest and refresh, refreshments. And so the Sabbath involved both soul rest and physical rest. It's so interesting as you see the, the story unfold in the Old Testament and the, the problems that people, God's people have with the Sabbath. We've already seen it with the manner account, the lack of trust in God's providence. They don't want to trust God for that seventh day. They want to work so hard that they can provide through that. And it goes badly. They didn't provide the trust that God would provide enough. In Nehemiah, we see that the greed of the people overtook them in trading and it really ate into the, 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 the nature of the society. We see in Chronicles that actually exiles from the land because they don't give the land the Sabbath. It is woven into the story of God's people. And then we read that Jesus Christ came. And at this point, it seems that, that the concept of Sabbath was totally misunderstood. Right at the start of the gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What he's saying is the Sabbath was not meant to be a burden. It's there for the health and flourishing of humanity. But what had happened, it had been twisted around and, and, and kind of turned on its head and it had become a burden. And the leaders of God's people had made it an increasing burden on God's people. In fact, it had almost become to the, to the, to the place that actually the way you engaged on the Sabbath made you right before God. As opposed to seeing and reflecting on the, day, the Sabbath as a day of rest to see what God has done for you and is doing in and through you. So what about us? How do we make sense of, of this and these passages now, this side of the cross? Remember when we, we look back to the Ten, ten Commandments? We, we spoke on that about a month ago. And we said that during that there was three types of law. You've got the moral law and you've got the civil and the ceremonial laws. And we said that the civil and the ceremonial laws, they were specific for the nation of Israel at that specific time and at that specific place. And we see that Jesus, he fulfilled these laws in his life and death, so they don't apply to us in the same way. So if we look at the Sabbath this way, where it's mentioned five times, and it's helpful to actually look at those five times and the way that it's mentioned, 
We can see that in the Sabbath law as it is, there are aspects which are ceremonial law, like which day it was or how it was included in the festivals. There's aspects of it which are civil law, like the, the penalties for, for death, for breaking the Sabbath law. Now, these civil and ceremonial laws are no longer binding. But there are principles behind God's setting of a sabbatical rhythm. Remember, we said the moral law reflects God's character. It is good to live in light of for humanity to flourish. And then as we get to the New Testament, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes. He lives, he dies. And what happened? He's raised as the first fruits of the new creation. There's again that echoes, echoes of Exodus and echoes of Eden. And Jesus Christ, when did he rise from the dead? He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's the Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. Jesus accomplished his new exodus on the first day of the week, a Sunday, a new creation. And from then on, what's happened is that God's people have been drawn to setting aside Sunday. Setting aside Sunday is a time to gather, a time to pray, a time to praise, a time to worship, a time to be hospitable, a time to be filled, a time to rest, a time to do acts of mercy. In other words, they've set it aside as a time to Sabbath. The early church, as we read it through Acts, set this pattern right from the start. Jesus Christ ascends and he, and he pours out his Holy Spirit upon the church in Acts chapter 2, 1 to 4. And the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church was the first day of the week. The day after Pentecost is 49 plus 1. We see that. It's on a Sunday. In Acts 20 verse 7, the Christians, they were gathering already then on the first day of the week. A little bit later on, in 1 Corinthians 16, the people were presenting tithes and offering on the first day of the week. You look at the early church history and you see through the, the church history and through the Middle Ages, they were meeting on the first day of the week. It wasn't the Jewish Sabbath. They actually worshipped on what John in Revelation 1 chapter, in chapter 1 verse 10 called the Lord's Day. They were worshipping on the Lord's Day. Now then, the Bible does, it does command us to gather. It does in Hebrews. But Colossians 2, 16, just throw that up for us. This and other verses say, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, there's a difference here. So there's no punishment or command for the day in the same way as the Old Testament. So we're not to pass judgment on each other regarding Sabbath. But there is a principle not a law here, and that principle is to push into for our health and flourishing. A healthy church, a healthy family, even I would say a healthy society and healthy humanity have a healthy pattern of work and rest and a healthy sabbatical rhythm because Sabbath was made for man. So the question then becomes, okay, well, what does it mean for us now to Sabbath well? Verse 7, 17 talks about rest and refreshments. So this is not just withdrawal in a, in, a, in a sense of the word it's actually a refreshing and it's a filling so what i'm going to say is that this should be actually a lifestyle we should have a, a sabbatical rhythm built into our lives and that goes on a on a big scale as a staff team um, from the church we've um, set up this over years so every seven years um, each staff member gets a, a sabbatical i had mine last year steve had his that i for five years before that. There's a pattern set up just as a healthy pattern for us. My question is, what does that look like for you? I know it's countercultural, 
When I took mine, the amount of people I spoke to who don't come to church were like, that's really interesting. I'd love that. That'd be really helpful. What's it look like to build that into your years? What's it look like to build that into your months? What's that look like to build that into your weeks and into your days? Some of you here are, are bosses. Some of you here are company owners. Some of you here are leaders and management. What's it look like to, to have this within your companies? Rhythm of rest and refreshments should be part of the fabric of our lives. And we all know our guess as we think this through that that would be healing. We all know that that would be refreshing, don't we? We all know if we actually took that time rightly, we know it would be good for our marriages. We know it would be good for our relationship with God. We know that it would be good for our relationship with our families, our church. We actually know, if we're honest, that it would be good for our work. Statistics will tell you that actually you become more productive with the right balance. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? just want to highlight a few external factors and a few internal factors. There are some reasons why we don't Sabbath well. First one that I want to highlight is technology. Technology is huge. Now, if you were to just take it back a little bit, let me take you back to email. Okay, so email, which came out through the late 70s and 80s, is a mode and a form of communication. Transforms so much. It transformed communication, but also in transforming communication, the knock-on effect, it transformed how we work, and it transformed family dynamics and society dynamics without us even realizing it. We bought into it and didn't see what the after effects would be. You see, before that came out, and I'm talking about a, a kind of a service office type of culture here. I know there are other types of culture and workplaces within it, but just within that parameter, okay? Within that, though, so before email came along, that everything we did was in the work hour parameter. Often it was on site, so you'd be in the, the building, and the office hours would be from nine till five, and you came in at nine, and you came, went home at five, and that's your contact with your workmates. That's when you would communicate. That's when you would speak to people. That's when you'd have your responsibilities and give feedback. But then email come, came along, and what happened? Everything became blurred. There was a, boundary, a blurred boundary between home and work. There was a blurred boundary between communication. So you could be contacted anywhere. Blurred lines happened. They seep into us. These phones, what we then, as the phones come along, we've actually taken that and put it on steroids. Phones are built to shape our lives. They are built to shape our lives. They create addictive tendencies. They trigger hormone responses within us. Phones have changed our neurological processes. They've changed our brains. They've changed the way that we think. They've reduced our concentration span so we can't concentrate on the same thing. We have to be flitting from one thing to another. We can't be still mentally. We actually can't think for more than a few minutes. They've changed how we think. There's also the fear of missing out, or FOMO, as I've seen it on certain young people's things. Now, this creates a, a, relentless, a restlessness and an anxiety Fear of missing out. They just can't rest. We can't enjoy a moment because we always think there's a, a better option. We always think there's something more. We always think there's something else so we can never get there. We always think there's something needs doing. We always think there's something better. I'm terrible. I can sit down. I'll have not much time on my own in the front room with my own TV to actually watch it. It doesn't happen very often, but when I do, I might have like 40 minutes and I can maybe watch one show. I'll probably spend the first 30 minutes of that actually trying to look for one and think I want to find the perfect one. And by the time I get to picking it, it's too late and I just go to bed. I can't even sit down to do that. But then there's also not just external pressures, but internal 
things that knock us sideways. Tim Keller, a pastor in America, he calls this a helpful thing. We all have an internal murmur. As he says, an internal murmur. And that internal murmur will be saying things like, you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. You're not enough. You failed. You don't compare well. Look outside and see what they're doing and what they've got and what they have. Discontentment. Relational dependency. All these things drive us from one thing to the next internally. Maybe a desire to prove ourselves. Maybe a desire to be ambitious. Maybe a desire to climb the ladder. Maybe a desire to have more stuff, to have the next car, to have the next holiday. Maybe we say that we're going to reach this level and then we stop and that's enough. But that's just more addictive language. It eats away at us. There's a a playwright called Henry Gibson. Uh, He he said this. Basically, he talks about living a life lie. Living a life lie. And he says what we do is we live in anticipation of a future happiness. That's our state of being, in anticipation of a future happiness. That if we attain that, that one thing, or that, them two things, it could be career, money, partner, holiday, children, you know, fill in the blanks. And either that doesn't happen, so that life lie doesn't actually happen, or when it does, it comes and it just doesn't fulfill us. Read about all those people who've got lots of money or have become famous and see the unhappiness. Or it comes and it's taken away. The lie fly leaves us discontent in the pursuit of the lie. And we are actually unhappy when we get it. And what happens is our world crumbles. To give you one example, which I think is, is something that we hear talked about. I think of men in a midlife crisis. Men who are in their 40s, And what happens is they get this kind of different existential outlook and they start to look at their life in different ways. And the lens that often they'll look through is this lifeline. Now, by the time you're 40s, you should be a certain way and you should have a certain thing and you should look a certain way and you should have achieved a certain amount. And what happens is we look at it a different way. All of a sudden, your body's changed, not the way you think. You're more tired. Your career is maybe not what it was. You haven't got the friends that you, you had in your 20s because men are terrible at making and keeping friends. Your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. It's a struggle. Your kids are a change. They've gone from being a young kid. You do everything that you say and adore you and give you cuddles and jump on your lap to all of a sudden being the kids that turn around and give you grief and won't do what you ask them to do. Amen. <laughs> and we get this unhealthy reflection from an unhealthy life rhythm and an unhealthy outlook. It's discontent. But the gospel truth tells us that there is a rest for humanity. There is a rest for humanity. And it's only found in our creator, in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you put up Matthew for us, please, Matt? Okay, I'm going to come back to this a bit. These are incredible verses. These are verses that are well worth you going home today and you learning them. Learning them. Literally getting them into your head and repeating them every day until you're able to repeat them. So when you haven't got your Bible to hand, you repeat these verses. Come to me, this is Jesus speaking. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You love that? You will find rest for your souls. There is a rest for your soul. There is a rest for my soul. There is a rest. And any true rest, any refreshment can only be found in Christ. 
So that's what I want to really start and just bringing this kind of home a little bit by saying that right sabbatical rhythm, right sabbathing, I don't even know if that's a phrase, but we'll go with it. Starts with spiritual rest. It starts with rest for your souls. And that rest is only found in Jesus Christ. So if we stop physically without spiritual refreshment, it's not rest. Even an example of the doctors, they'll tell you that actually if you, if you go to sleep and have loads and loads of sleep, but you don't have that REM sleep, you wake up feeling exhausted. You could have slept for hours. That kind of night where you go to sleep and you're in a night sleep, you're in a really light sleep for about six, seven hours. You remember your dreams, you're in and out of it, and you might have been in bed for about six hours. You might have been dozing for six hours or asleep, but you wake up and you're exhausted. It's not proper sleep. Three weeks ago, I went on a, um, we went on, me and my wife went on a Norwegian cruise to the fjords that was paid for by my father-in-law, and we had an incredible time. It was, it was wonderful. Everything you could, everything you could ask for. It was luxury. It was a 19-story luxury hotel, basically, on the water. We had a cabin with a, a sea view. We had all-you-could-eat food. It was great food every day, all day. There was about 13, 12, 13 different restaurants. There was all the drink you could want. There was entertainment, loads of different types of entertainment every night. We were out in the middle of the most beautiful scenery in the world, the Norwegian fjords. I was with Bonnie, who I just love spending time with. We had no responsibilities at all. I've not had no responsibilities for a long time. There was nothing to worry about. We went on the Friday to the Saturday, like the eight days. And on the Tuesday, on the middle of the week, I started to get that internal murmur that I was talking about. Like a weird discontentment, like a dissatisfaction. I got a little bit grumpy. I was a bit of relational tension. I'm like, what's going on here? And I realized I just, I've not spent any time, any time at all with God. Any time at all. Been enjoying all these physical things. Everything the world says, that's great. But it did not bring my soul that rest. So on the Wednesday morning, I got up and it was, a, it was a quieter day. And I literally spent a couple of hours just in quiet with God, just in his word, just praying, coming to and asking. And God led me to two passages, Galatians 6 and Matthew 11, this passage that we have here. And the question, I do a lot of journaling. I wrote about three sides of journaling. And underneath every single page was, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? God was so gracious. He led me at that moment to be able to, in the choir, to confess, confess my entitlement, confess my selfishness, to repent and ask for help and receive forgiveness and freedom. And those last few days, I enjoyed them in a totally different way. I enjoyed them in a life-giving way. It was a great time. So Mick, if you're watching, I thank you for that. I really do appreciate it. The whole week, it was wonderful. But I would have to say the rest, no matter how good, no matter how good, pours from our relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's not the starting point, it's not true rest. So as we really dig down and apply it, let me ask you the question, where can you take the time to be refreshed in Christ? Do you take the time to be refreshed in Christ? Or do you just go from one thing to the next? What does that look like this week? Maybe that's something for you to work out as a gospel community, to sit down and say, okay, well, how can you do this? Do you do this? Answer honestly, do you do this? Do you set aside the time to be with your Father? Do you set aside the time, and specifically the time through Sundays? This is a day where we shouldn't be allowing work or the cares of the world to creep in. 
This is a day that we should be keeping free to, to serve in a life-given way. This is a day which we should be using to pause, to, to put the phone down, maybe keep it in a box by the door, to turn the computer off, to put the tools away, the paintbrushes away, the hoover away, a day to praise and worship, a day to be thankful, a day to bless, and a day to be blessed. A day to sing, a day to listen, a day to serve, a day to do acts of kindness and mercy. That's how Jesus used it. And that refreshment that we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ, it could be, folks, it could be coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in sin. If that is stopping you, take it to him. Confess and repent. And what, repent. And what, you, what you receive when you confess and repent is forgiveness and freedom. That's what you receive. Coming to Jesus in our weakness and vulnerability, but being filled by God's strength. It's a time to be reminded of how much we have to be thankful for, how much God has provided for us. It's a time to be reminded of God's mercy, his compassion, his intimacy, and his love for us. It's a time to spend with your heavenly Father, by the Holy Spirit, through the Son. Do you see it as that? Do you see prayer as a time that you are spending with your Father? Sometimes I think we get so caught up by talking in prayer to God that we forget that actually what we're doing is spending time with our Father. And relationship building takes time. Specifically, if you're, if you're new to the faith or just coming to faith, can I encourage you? Take time. That's what we see here in Exodus 31. This is a people just released from slavery. And God's saying, use this chance. Take this day. Get to know me better. Get to know me better. Spend time with me. Enjoy his presence. Be filled because I am the fountain of life. Be changed. And relationships, they, they, they take time. But let's remember that the Sabbath is also grounded in creation. Remember, it's grounded in two ways here. One, that relationship with God through redemption, but also in creation. So there is a physical rest. Physical rest, when done properly, is good for your body. And it's especially good for your brain. So put the phone aside. Be still. A day to rest, not to clean, not to, to work on your career. And if you can't put aside one day to not do those things, then... It might indicate that you want to long like Israel did. They want long to go back to Egypt. They long to go back to slavery at times. You might need to be reminded that you've been freed from those things. And remember, it's not an emptying. The world will tell you that actually rest is just switching off to binge on Netflix for hours on the couch or play computer games, whatever it is. But that's not the biblical Sabbath. It's a day to be refreshed. It's a day to be filled. So ask yourself, what gives you life? What are the things that actually fill you? What are the things that you do that fill you? Is it spending time in creation? Is it listening to music? Is it singing? Is it creating? Sorry, my keeps going up there. Apologies. Is it creating something? In this time, plan to do life-giving things. Don't just go missing and withdraw, but step in and do life-giving things. It's a time to do things which slow us down. I've done a bit of reading on this over the past couple of years, and I've read some really interesting stuff, some stuff's out there. But one, stuff, one of the things I read was about a group of people who practiced the discipline of slowness, and I found this really interesting, really interesting. So what these people will do is they'll actually choose the slow queue in the shops, the longer queue. They will choose the slow queue in the traffic. They will walk behind those slow pedestrians that they're trying to walk past, in the shopping centers, they will choose to do it. Why? Because we're conditioned to fastness. Go fast, quicker, quicker. Efficiency, go, go, go. 
It's not good for us. We shared a little while ago. I shared a little about a while ago about being stood in a shop. What's the first thing I do when I'm stood at Tesco's waiting to buy me lunch? I've got about 30 seconds. I pull my phone out and I'm looking at it. My brain just doesn't settle. I don't think on the things I've just been talking about or engaging in. My emotions are all over the place. Slow down. Time to think, to reorientate, to contemplate. I was with someone um, on, on Wednesday in quite a high-powered job, and they'd got a dog. They bought, they, they bought a dog as a family four months ago, and it's his job to walk the dog early in the morning. And these were his words he said to me. He said, I didn't know the bird sang so much. That's what he said, and he loves it. He's always going back to his wife and saying, the birds are always singing. Are we so busy that we don't hear the birds sing? Make time. So I know this is going to look different for different people. Sunday might not always be possible. Could be because of working in the health profession or sports profession or me, staff teams on churches. It's a different dynamic for us. So maybe do it in a different way. Think of another day. Make it appropriate to the life stage that you're in. I've got my girls at home at 9, 11, and 13. It's a bit easier for me to have a bit of quiet time because they can do things themselves. I know some might have younger families or more or different responsibilities. But the principle still stands. It might look different, but we still need to engage in it. Imagine setting aside Sunday just for that. A time to rest and be refreshed in the Lord. Not to be turning up late to church and harried, which isn't good for our spiritual growth. Not good for our soul. And then just leaving after the service to just go back Sunday like it's any other day. Why do we make our Sundays look and feel different? Give them a different shape. It's good for you. Imagine actually setting your mind on it on Saturday evening. Starting to pray about it on Saturday evening. Imagine having a Sunday morning routine which is different to the other week, the other days of the week. It doesn't involve your phone, but it involves contemplating God's word. Maybe going for a walk, listening to worship music or different music that stirs your affections. Praying in a different way. Choosing to slow down, to think, pray, and do what? Exodus 31, to grow in the knowledge of our God. Lots of work, clean the house, paint, decorate. Just spend time with our Father. By the Spirit, through the Son. Being filled in a way which is peace-giving and joy-giving but also a time to serve people, to serve others from a rightly motivated heart, to maybe do acts of kindness and mercy. That's how Jesus Christ did use the Sabbath, but was to do it with the right motive. Putting those habits and those, putting those gifts and talents that we talked about just before to good use, opening up our homes, blessing others and being blessed in the process. Imagine how evangelistic that would be to the watching world. See, this world... Christian is longing for what we have. That life lie that I talked about is being lived out everywhere. Everywhere. In your workplaces, in your homes, in your families. But we have the truth and we can trust the truth and we can grow in our knowledge of God and we can be refreshed with Him. Or we can trust in our own strength. It's the path of anxiety, fear, and discontent. God designed us to flourish this way. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And our Sabbath rest is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden 
is light. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this invitation that we have. Father, our souls are in turmoil at times. There is a discontent. There is an unhealthiness. There is an inner murmur. There is a wanting to prove ourselves, desiring satisfaction and fulfillment and things that just don't provide it. And Father, we end up often empty. We end up anxious. We end up fearful. We end up on that treadmill that just doesn't stop, not actually achieving the things that we want to achieve. And Father, we read here and we see here that you have given us a rest. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not received that rest, who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that they will see that this is a free offer. There's nothing to do. There is nothing, nothing that they bring to the table other than to say, I need this rest, help me. To see the open arms that you have for them to say that I provide, that I've dealt with your sin. It's gone in the Lord Jesus Christ. That inner turmoil is gone. And Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would pour peace and life and joy into people's hearts right now. And Father, for us as we sit here, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but living in a broken world, in our broken bodies, experiencing pain and hardship and difficulty, Father, having a million and one things thrown at us all the time through different social media, TV, through people in our lives that just pull us from one place to the next. Father, I just pray that you would give us a laser focus right here, right now, to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the invitation that we have, to see what we actually have access to, to see what we have received, which is rest, which is life, which is joy, which is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It is ours. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to live in it. Help us to live from it, I pray. Father, for the things that we need to confess, I pray that we would do that now as we take this bread and this wine, the Father, as we are reminded of what it took the Lord Jesus Christ. We will confess those things. We would repent from those things. And Father, we would see the forgiveness that we have received, the freedom that we have, and it will bring a rest for our souls. Father, I pray that we as a people, that you would help us to, to live out what we are called to do. Father, that we'd not be chained to the world, but that we would be a people who display that rest in every part of our lives. Help us to do it. Father, give us creativity. Give us wisdom. Help us to take the risks that are needed to do this well. And I, Father, I just pray that we would see the fruit of this pouring out in our lives, not just today, Father, but in the weeks and months and years ahead. Amen. So the bread and the wine is going to go around. If you're not a believer here today, the Bible says that this is for those who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would let this pass. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ even now, then join it. Take us. Take it with us. But if you can't do that, I ask that you would let this pass. And folks, let's, let's treat this rightly as the bread and the wine go around, as we hold on to the the bread and as we eat it take this time to ask God for help yes confessing and yes repenting but asking God for help to walk this well I think this is a challenge a specific challenge for our culture and our day but let's ask for God's help to walk this well